Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Season 2, Episode 5, The Belgian Congo in the 1920s and 30s. Last time, we saw the Belgian Congo at war as a whole for the first time during World War I. It had shown its importance and formidable manpower in campaigns against German East Africa, and through its support of the war in the European theatre, through its considerable mineral wealth. When the war was finally over, at the Versailles Peace Conference, the victorious powers of France, Britain and the United States divided up the globe as they deemed fit. During this conference they deemed that tiny Belgium, the site of much of the European conflict, had earned a small seat at the table. What Belgium wanted was to retain its colony, and through the conflicts in East Africa the Force Publique had ironically earned this right for Belgium. The superpowers of the day determined that the lands of the Congolese would remain under Belgium control. Belgium did not get everything it wanted, however. It remained a small voice with little influence on the international stage. They had lobbied for full control of both of the River Congo banks as it flowed into the Atlantic, but this was not granted. The Portuguese had entered the conflict on the side of the Allies and retained the southern border of the river in Angola, as well as their small enclave between the DRC and the Republic of the Congo to the north, Cabinda. In the east, however, Belgium was ceded new lands and Belgium was granted the mandates of the Burunda and Rwanda territories. These former kingdoms are each approximately the size of Belgium itself. In the pursuit of categorisation, the European powers designated that these lands were populated by three ethnicities, the Hutus, the Tutsi and the minority Twa, or Pygmies as these are more colloquially known. Amongst these peoples, the Hutu were historically agrarian peoples who were thought to have settled here in the original Bantu migrations around 500 BC. These displaced the Twa, who represented a very small proportion of the two kingdoms' peoples. The Tutsi arrived later as pastoralist Neolithic peoples in the 15th century. But this discussion is one that needs to be entered into very lightly indeed. Rhetoric regarding the differences between these peoples is explosive. So much so that the distinction is illegal in certain areas. I'm not quite sure I'm ready to enter this with my amateur podcast. We have listeners around the world who will have opinions and personal experiences that will be deeper than my research, so I will absolutely defer to them. But at the start of the 20th century, the Germans, and then the Belgians, were keen to understand the peoples in their new territories. Rwanda and Burundi remained as small kingdoms, and previous power structures were less diluted than in other areas. Cattle ownership represented economic wealth and closeness to power, which meant that the power hierarchy favoured a pastoral lifestyle. This continued under colonial times. But in our 1920s look at Congo history, we can leave this here. The associated differences between the peoples of these lands have enormous repercussions much later. At the birth of Congolese independence in the 1950s, continuing through the 1960s and 70s in Burundi, and in the 1990s spreading throughout the whole of Central Africa. But this is for much later, and it's not a discussion that I will focus too deeply on. I tread very lightly here, out of respect for the millions of people who have been affected by this in living memory. Back in the 1920s Belgian Congo, 
The Congolese had found that World War I had started to blur the differences between themselves and the Europeans. For those who fought in the European theatres, this was particularly so. Van Raybrook writes of Albert Kujabo and Paul Panda Fanana. These were two of a number of Congolese children who had been taken to Belgium. You may recall we saw the Portuguese undertake this same act way back in the 15th century. But in the 20th century, these men, alongside 30 others, volunteered to fight in the Belgian army against the Germans. They fought on the Western Front, but Kajabo and Panda were captured as POWs. After four years, as the war drew to a close, their imprisonment ended. They were finally free. They moved with the other Congolese survivors to Brussels. They had grown used to equality with their Belgian comrades as they fought side by side on the horrors of the Western Front. But in peacetime, things had changed. Some of these Congolese were no longer wanted in Belgium. This was a jolt to the Congolese veterans. Even their former fellow soldiers wrote dismissively in their paper that they would be better off being repatriated to the Congo. These sentiments, I think, were meant altruistically, and their rhetoric was about removing these men from the cold northern European winters. But nevertheless, the resentment and the hurt must have been palpable. Having fought alongside the Belgians, the indignity of capture and sharing the long suffering of confinement, their former comrades felt that they would be better off transported back to their tropical homes. There they could escape devastated post-war Belgium. Romantic as this may seem now, the Congolese veterans of course had their own minds. They were now settled in Europe and they formed the Union Congolese to collectively voice their views. The purpose of the Union was to protect the rights and equality of the Congolese diaspora living in Belgium, and its membership began to grow. Congolese sailors jumping ship at Antwerp after being disgruntled at lower pay than their Belgian counterparts joined the organisation. These too had seen Europeans labouring first-hand, which would never have happened in the colony. It was clear to these men that there was less difference between Congolese and Europeans as they had been led to believe. The reality of equality was solidifying. Paul Panda emerged as the leader of the organisation. He was recognised as an intellectual, and in December 1920 he was invited to address the first National Colonial Congress in Brussels. Here he espoused Congolese representation in Parliament. Amongst the politicians this received a standing ovation. As we have seen in previous episodes, many of the Belgians did not support the colony, and they welcomed this view. These views were gathering strength internationally. In 1921, Paul Panda attended the second Pan-African Conference of that year in Brussels, with the first held some months earlier in London. Here, he met Blaise Guiagne, a Senegalese member of the French Parliament. He saw firsthand that in the French Empire, it was possible for a colonial-born man to enter government. In the 1920s, the Pan-African movement was alive and well. The society was formed at the end of the 19th century and it is credited with influencing the US President, Woodrow Wilson, with his anti-colonial sentiments. But representation was never to be the case for those born in the Belgian Congo. Panda's aspirations were never realised. Despite the support for Panda's speech, this led to an untrodden path in history. The socialists may have had desires to move to the representative democracy, and within Belgium many people fully supported representation and equality of the Congolese, but they were not in power. 
The voices of the Catholic Party and the more hierarchical approach to the Congo ultimately drove Belgian policy decisions. In the Congo, the state, the missions and the concessions companies remained in charge, and all three required the cooperation and labour of the people. Each European power's approach to colonialism was different. It was a wasted opportunity for a partnership along much more equal lines, which may have helped prevent some of the tragedies after independence. But ultimately this was not to be. It is astonishing to think that this was all happening in the 1920s. It is easy not to appreciate the age of equality movements in the often polemic discourse of modern times. But in reality the goals of the Belgian Congo and activities were set by the Belgian government. Although the colonial authorities themselves had some local autonomy in implementation, ultimately their principal task was the facilitation of support for the other pillars of colonial power, the church and the corporations. Companies would be supported through labour laws, infrastructure and law and order, in order to help them generate money of course. The church would be supported to provide moral development and welfare. To support the companies in the movement of their goods to market, there was considerable investment in infrastructure. These projects were to facilitate the transport of valuable mineral goods to the coast, rather than to facilitate the ease of movement for the people. In the 1920s, the National Way, or Voie Nationale, was completed. This linked Katanga to the Great Central River Basin, and a railway line was constructed through the south of the country through the Kasai region to Alebo, then called Port Frankie. Industrialisation had stamped out the geographical boundaries in the country and the DRC was becoming more interconnected within its previously artificial territorial boundaries. Elebo sat on the Kasai River, a major tributary flowing to the River Congo from the south. The route would have traversed the lands of the Lunda, Luba and Kuba, but this was nowhere near the minds of the planners who surveyed this track. The railway was quite distinct from the pre-colonial African trade routes that we have seen in the past. It was solely to transport ore from the Katanga mines to the Atlantic coast via the Great River Basin and the Matadi Railway. In the whole of the Belgian Congo between 1920 and 1930, just under 1,600 miles of new track was laid. Of all of this track, revealingly, 80% was laid to serve Katanga industries. These tracks were well used. From 1923 to 1930, copper production more than doubled growing from 56,000 metric tonnes to 139,000 metric tonnes. The Congo was now the third largest producer of copper in the world, and it wasn't just copper that was exported out of the colony. Diamond exports increased nearly eight times, from 319,000 carats in 1920 to 2.5 million in 1930. Agriculture output also ramped up with cotton, palm oil and coffee harvesting, all increasing dramatically. In the west, the Matadi-Kinshasa line was lengthened. Tunnels and bridges were refreshed and the journey time was reduced from 19 hours to 12 hours. The connection between Katanga, the Central River Plateau and the Atlantic was now secure and faster than it had ever been. The resource-rich areas of the Belgian Congo were now interconnected and connected to the Atlantic coast. But this was at great cost. Much of the burden of this achievement had fallen squarely on the Congolese. To facilitate the infrastructure, the state needed people, and they turned, as ever, to local manpower. Even as late as 1920, some colonial administrators still advocated the use of forced labour, but this no longer yielded the results they wanted. 
Despite recruitment expeditions into the Central Plateau, i.e. legitimised abduction forays, authorities could not find enough people to complete the Western Railway. They had to attract workers in the same way that companies do across the world today, with wages. But it was still incredibly difficult work. Of the 60,000 Congolese workers, 7,000 died. The wages were low, but did provide more income than for people who did not work. They did have the unintended consequence that dowries for brides increased substantially. They were subject to inflation, as some got wealthier. But working in the new industries represented an opportunity to save money and progress. And young men, it was by far mostly men, seized this opportunity. Van Raybrook, as is his talent, speaks to Etienne and Cassie, who remembers his experience of this time. I will say that name again, Etienne and Cassie, and it is here that we shall take a small interval. And Cassie's life is worthy of a podcast in its own right, and depending on the feedback of this podcast, this might happen. And Cassie was born in 1882, a year questioned in the Congo, as it made him 126 years old in 2008 when he was interviewed. But his memories and recollections convinced the author, and me, of the truth of this. He was born in the Bas Congo area, between Malebi Pool and Matadi on the Atlantic coast, and he remembers the railway, completed in 1898, being built there when he was a child. Later, in the early 20s, he worked on the revamp to this line that we have just mentioned. This included working as a chair-bearer for the particularly oppressive chef de poste, or station chief, who was responsible to bring order for the region after a period of strife. The chief was not remembered fondly, and Nkasi, despite our modern perception of indignity, remembers carrying this man with great humour. He describes him balancing, flapping his arms and panicking as he tried to balance on the sedan chair. But this man could not be laughed at to his face, and this is testimony to Nkasi's strength of character. The official was a brute, in one case responsible for ordering the chicot on Nkasi's uncle. But later, Nkasi would meet Monsieur Peignot. He was judged as a capable and empathetic colonial official, with a promising career by the Belgium authorities. Nkasi seconded this, and he would travel with him through the different villages in the 20s and 30s, settling disputes and drinking palm wine with the Congolese. Monsieur Panu befriended Nkasi, and asked him to move to Kikwit in the Kwilu province. Here, Nkasi became a carpenter, got married, revealingly only to one wife in line with the European ways, and started a family. Nkasi's son described him as an avolue, the term used for Congolese who had adopted Western lifestyles. This was a happy period in Nkasi's life, and he recalls with a smile wearing a shirt and tie to work. He would have been very close to the colonial hierarchy. I note, however, that he settled in what he calls one of the neighbourhoods for the Congolese, showing that segregation was still alive and well in the late 1920s, but other Congolese did not have these opportunities or fortune. In the 1930s, the Great Depression came, and after the Wall Street crash in New York, the poor suffered the worst consequences, as normally happens in an economic downturn. As demand fell, prices dropped, but the colonial bureaucracy was unable to react to changes in demand, and supply quotas for some commodities, notably palm oil, did not change. This exacerbated the price drop, and for palm oil, the price for 30 kilos of fruit dropped two and a half times, from two and a half francs to one franc. The company responsible for palm oil production, as we have seen, was called HCB. The state forced the Pendi people, 
who lived in the Quilu area where the palm trees grew, to meet production. But ridiculously, as the demand was so low, HCB would be unwilling to buy the fruit as there was such low demand, even though they forced the people to farm the nuts. Eventually, the prices were so low and the demand was so poor that the Pendi people who lived in the area were unwilling to collect the fruit. They needed to revert to subsistence farming to feed themselves. In early May 1931, they effectively went on strike through a peaceful protest. The Quilu administrator writes, The openly anti-European movement is characterised by a total secession of economic activity. For several days now, not a single crate of fruit has been delivered. Equally alarmingly for the state administrators, however, was the refusal of the people to pay the state taxes, which had been levied on all Congolese to support the development of the colony. This was not income-based, and was a flat fee which necessitated three to four months of work to foot the bill. This may not seem alarming to us now, and is less than in many countries today, but for this contribution, the Pendi people received very little apart from more resources for the state to exploit their lands. They had little to no notion of a government that was providing services on their behalf. In an almost Orwellian form of bureaucracy, the state quotas needed to be met. With supply drying up completely, the company sent its agents to coerce the Pendi. Just like the turn of the century, initially the people ran to the forests and the agents were unsuccessful. But in a horrific throwback to the Congo Free State, the agents whipped the men who had unsuccessfully supplied their quotas and imprisoned the women in the village. This escalated the tensions, and after the abuse of some of the captives, the Pendi people were understandably furious. One man, Matermo, sought compensation for the authorities as his wife, Kafushi, had been assaulted during confinement. Matermo was initially beaten by the police, but after being shot in the arm he charged at the company agent, followed him into the bush, and killed him. Large groups of up to 200 pendi were then galvanised to protect their lands and families, using bows and arrows to drive colonial representatives from their lands. But we have seen time and time again how military engagement between bows and arrows and guns finishes. From the muskets used by the Arabs to the Mauser rifles used by the explorers, armed resistance by the people without modern weapons had the odds stacked against them. It was now the 1930s, and the weapons had progressed even more. On the 14th of July 1931, the force public used machine guns. The revolt just could not last. Ultimately, it ended just four months after it had begun, in September 1931. Estimates put African dead at between 500 to 1,500, with the colonial forces losing less than five men. But the lopsided casualties did not allay the fears of the colonial authorities. There was recognition that this treatment was not okay. But the absence of the international community in the 1930s meant that this revolt was largely unnoticed, and memories of it were quashed. There was no morale or shepherd in the 1930s, as the Great Depression took hold across the globe. So the fear translated to suppression, as we have seen. After a European man was murdered by a Congolese, the popular paper, L'Avenir Colonial Belge, wrote an editorial. Is our personal safety, the safety of the Europeans, still insured in Leopoldville? One can reply in all sincerity, no. The acts of insubordination by the locals are multiplying. Their insolence is great and strikes fear into the hearts of even the bravest amongst us. Thefts are increasing in number, and the scope and arrogance of the locals towards us is at times staggering. The fear we instil in them is nil. 
The respect for the Mandeli is a thing of the past. This is how things stand in our year of our Lord, 1930. But we hear you say, is Stanley Pool a region once again in need of pacifying? Well, why ever not? Despite all their power, and in the advance of modernity in the Congo, an undercurrent of fear ran through the administration and many of the people who had moved to the colony from Belgium. This fear did not just extend to uprisings and protest, but also to a much more dangerous phenomenon. Many Congolese were identifying away from the colonial system. New ideas were spreading, and people at their core were unable to accept the colonial message without question. In September 1889, a man was born in Nkumba, Lower Congo, which exemplified the evolution of ideas, perhaps above all others. His name was Simon Kumbangu. The Kumbangu name in Kikongo, the language of the Congo peoples, means the one who reveals what is hidden. To his followers, this was an apt description. In his youth, he attended a British missionary school, where he was described as a good, thoughtful man with a good knowledge of the Bible. In 1918, at the age of 29, he received his first call to tend Christ's flock. He followed this calling and moved to Kinshasa. Here, it is thought he was influenced by the wealth of ideas spreading throughout the city. At this time, there were only 20,000 inhabitants, and he would have met Ghanaians, Nigerians, Senegalese and Sierra Leoneans. Importantly, around 1,000 of these West Africans were literate, accompanied by around 500 literate Congolese employed by the state companies and religious organisations. Through Andre Yengu, Kimbangu was introduced to an underground organisation called the Universal Negro Improvement Association, whose members referred to themselves as Congo men, as a badge of honour. These were interested in the Pan-African ideas espoused by Paul Panda and would have been able to see the official Belgian papers' lines of how dangerous these notions of equality were. In a slightly more mystical stance, some of the group followed Garveyism, which messaged that the ancestors taken from their homeland were soon to return even more powerful than the Belgians, to create a paradise on earth. The legacy of those taken clearly remained very deep in the psyche of those who remained. Hundreds of years of the slave trade had not been forgotten. Simon Kimbangu continued to hear the voice of God throughout this time, and in April 1921 he returned to Nkamba to set up a ministry here he performed miracles and spoke in strange tongues. Etienne and Cassie himself spoke of these miracles to Van Braybrook. Thousands of workers left their jobs and headed for Encamba Jerusalem, as it was now called. They heard of African pride, liberation and self-reliance. Many anticipated that a ship would arrive up the river carrying back the generations who had left their shores to help them rebuild their lands. The authorities were terrified. Just as they had done with Kempervita two centuries before, they sought to eradicate these preachings, to get people back to work. Kimbangu was arrested and sentenced to death for preaching Pan-Africanism. But by royal decree this sentence was commuted to lifelong imprisonment, and Kimbangu's disciples and followers were sent to agricultural labour camps for people with dangerous ideas. But this did little to surpass the movement. This dispersal became the most effective way to spread the word of hope, and Kimbanguism spread throughout the Belgian Congo. In turn, these ideas evolved to other movements, such as the Kitawala faith that joined Malawi and Zambian churches in a unified call for Pan-Africanism. Kimbanguism was instrumental in spreading the ideas of resistance through colonial Central Africa.
But ideas were just ideas, and ultimately the Belgian colonial structure remained strong. But Kimbangoism never faded away. On Christmas Eve 1959, the Church of Simon Kimbangu became a member of the World Council of Churches. It remains the third largest religion in the Congo today, after Catholicism and Protestantism. These churches today welcome these followers as fellow Christians, far removed from the oppressive doctrines of the 1920s and 30s. There are Kimbanguist churches spread around the globe today. You may see these followers celebrating Christmas by a parade, singing and dancing, in green and white clothes as are their holy colours. But this is not the only difference. Christians in the Kimbanguist church celebrate on the 25th of May. But at this date of celebration, here we leave the Congo for this meeting. The colony is developing fast, and despite increased wealth and improving standards of living for some Congolese, there is still discontentment at the colonial system. There was an undercurrent of the desire to be liberated. In the next episode we shall find this sentiment echoed throughout the world, as dictators flex their military muscles against the democracies and communists. World War II was coming, and, spurred on by a letter of one of the most famous scientists of all time, new global superpowers were fixing their eyes on the Congo. Next time the Americans arrived, and their influence would be here to stay. We are getting closer and closer to the context of the modern Congo. This may surprise you, but it's a spy thriller next episode, and I'm looking forward to it. So until then, safe travels, and see you next time.